All right, so open in your Bibles to Genesis 34. Genesis 34. I guarantee you haven't heard many sermons on this passage. And if you could prove me wrong, you could tell me about it later. But it's definitely not the happiest time in Israel's history, to say the least. But it is a part of the Word of God. And as I studied it, I found out there is incredible blessing in taking the time to understand why it's there and allow the Word of God to teach us from it. So that's Genesis 34 as we work our way through the book of Genesis. Stand for the reading of God's holy, authoritative word. Hear God's word to you this morning. Now Dinah, the daughter Leah had born to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land. When Shechem, son of Hamor the Hivite, the ruler of that area, saw her, he took her and violated her. His heart was drawn to Dinah, daughter of Jacob, and he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. And Shechem said to his father Hamor, Get me this girl as my wife. When Jacob heard that his daughter Dinah had been defiled, his sons were in the fields with his, with his livestock. So he kept quiet about it until they came home. Then Shechem's father Hamor went out to talk with Jacob. Now Jacob's sons had come in from the fields as soon as they heard what had happened. They were filled with grief and fury because Shechem had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing that should not be done. But Hamor said to them, My son Shechem has his heart set on your daughter. Please give her to him as his wife. Intermarry with us. Give us your daughters and take our daughters for yourselves. You can settle among us. The land is open to you. Live in it, trade in it, and acquire property in it. Then Shechem said to Dinah's father and brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and I will give you whatever you ask. Make the price for the bride and the gift I am to bring as great as you like, and I'll pay whatever you ask me. Only give me the girl as my wife. Because their sister Dinah had been defiled, Jacob's sons replied deceitfully as they spoke to Shechem and his father Hamor. They said to them, We can't do such a thing. We can't give our sister to a man who's not circumcised. That would be a disgrace to us. We will give our consent to you on one condition only, that you become like us by circumcising all your males. Then we will give you our daughters and take your daughters for ourselves. We will settle among you and become one people with you. But if you will not agree to be circumcised, we'll take our sister and go. Their proposal seemed good to Hamor and his son Shechem. The young man, who was the most honored of all of his father's household, lost no time in doing what they said, because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. So Hamor and his son Shechem went to the gate of their city to speak to their fellow townsmen. These men are friendly toward us, they said. Let them live in our land and trade in it. The land has plenty of room for them. We can marry their daughters, and they can marry ours. But the men will consent to live with us as one people, only on the condition that our males be circumcised as they are. Won't their livestock, their property, and all their other animals become ours? So let us give our consent to them, and they will settle among us. All the men who went out of the city gate agreed with Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male in the city was circumcised. Three days later, while all of them were still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, 
took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every male. They put Hamor and his son Shechem to the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and left. The sons of Jacob came upon the dead bodies and looted the city where their sister had been defiled. They seized their flocks and herds and donkeys and everything else of theirs in the city and out in the fields. They carried off all their wealth and all their women and children, taking as plunder everything in the houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me a stench to the Canaanites and Perizzites, the people living in this land. We are few in number, and if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. But they replied, Should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? Thus ends the reading of God's holy and errant word. May he bless it to hearts and lives this morning. You may be seated. As I mentioned, as before we read the text, this, this week we come to one of the bleakest spots in the history of God's covenant family, the house of Jacob. And I'll be honest with you, I really had to fight the temptation to skip it. Like what I wanted to do is just say, hey, we're going we're gonna to go to the next chapter. Everybody just read chapter 34 and kind of get caught up on, you know, it, it's tempting to do that because this is so ugly. Is it not? And what I thought about was this. I, I have my phone out because I, I put the quote in my email. <laughs> Anybody ever see The Matrix? Come on, hopefully most of you have seen The Matrix. Well, the quick gist of it is there is a fantasy land where everybody thinks everything's just honky-dory and beautiful, and in reality, real life is a mess. And so you have Morpheus, who's talking to Neo, who just got pulled out of the fantasy land into the real land. Or no, I'm sorry, he's still in the fantasy land, and he says this to him. He says, this is your last chance. After this, there's no turning back. You take the blue pill... The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Remember, all I'm offering is the truth, nothing more. The point is, the Bible is the red pill. The Bible doesn't sugarcoat things. The Bible is not going to tell us to live in a fantasy land. It's not going to put the best spin on it. The Bible is um, not, um, the message of the Bible is not stay positive. So we have preachers today who are high, high profile and they're very popular. And what do they do to stay popular and of course to make lots of money is they cherry pick what texts from the Bible they want to preach on. And the, the main theme of their messages is often, live your best life now. You with me? Or it's all about your happiness. And you don't hear him talk a lot about sin. You don't hear him talk a lot about hell. You certainly don't hear him talk about the R word, repentance. But this type of spirituality is false because, listen why, this is important to understand this. It sugarcoats the very real problem of evil. Evil is a real problem. Sin is a real problem. And it's something that we reckon with every day. Of course, unless we take the wrong pill. And we live in our own little bubble and try to ignore 
how bad things really are. And the bigger problem with this is, not only does it misdiagnose the problem of sin and evil, but listen, this is important, but in doing so, it severely minimizes the radicalness of the grace of God's redemption in Christ. You get that? It's super important to see that. So what I want to show you the, the morning, this morning as we look at this text, and we come and we take, we take the red pill, so we see life as it really is. And don't forget, I want to mention this. Genesis is the book that tells us about what happened in the garden when we did what God told us not to do, isn't it? It's the book that tells us we lived in paradise until we took from the tree God told us not to and brought disaster upon ourselves and this world. So what we're going to see this morning is this. The gospel is the only answer for unbelievers and believers alike. And we're going to see this because it's really important to see that grace is not just the best remedy for man's problem of evil and sin. But listen, this is important to understand. It's the only answer for the problem of sin and evil. And we're going to see three things. First of all, sin is a sad, shameful reality in this world. We need to be honest about that. We need to face it. It's a reality, this side of the garden. Second thing we're going to see is that sin is not completely absent even in the church. How often we look at the church, we get disappointed, we get disenfranchised because, oh no, we saw sin in the church. But the sad fact is, we are not yet what we are going to be. And we are not yet at our final destination. And so we heard in our prayer requests how our immediate families often are dysfunctional and filled with sin. Well, unfortunately, so is our spiritual family because our spiritual family is made up of sinners, thankfully saved by grace, but yet with still many issues needing to be sanctified. And the last thing we're going to see, and that'll be a brief point, but the most important one, salvation is just as much a reality as sin is. Grace is just as real as sin is. And sometimes we fail to believe that to our own peril. That it's just as real. So let's take a look at the first thing. That is sin is a sad, shameful reality in this world. So in Genesis 34, we get a glimpse of the power and the dominance of sin in the lives of those who are outside of a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And then we also see something else that we often hear this quote thrown around a lot. Absolute power, what? Corrupts absolutely. We see this in this young man, Shechem, who thinks because he's the, the king's son, he can just take whatever he wants, do whatever he wants, because he has the power. Listen, brothers and sisters, don't we see that in our own country? People in the positions of authority and in power using it for bad and not for good. So Jacob's only daughter, I want you to notice this, he's the she's the daughter of Leah. And that's significant because notice later on the two brothers that really head up the whole revenge mission is Leah's full brother, full brothers. 
She takes a trip to see the women of the land where Jacob settled on his way to Bethel. So God had called Jacob to go back to Bethel, and he took a stop at Shechem for a while. That's what we see. So on the one hand, it makes sense that Dinah, being the only girl in the family, think about it, that she'd want to go see the women in the land. <laughs> she wants to have some, some women fellowship. She's been with guys all the time. So she wanted to um, spend some time with some lady friends. But the problem is the land was a pagan land. It was a land of idolatry and a land where the ladies that she would meet, and as we're going to see the men as well, did not have faith in the one true God who made the heavens and the earth. And so then we get into, as you read the commentaries, you get into what we call in marriage counseling the blame game. The blame game. You know, so some people blame Jacob. So they say, this whole thing would have never happened, right, if Jacob would have just went straight to Bethel. Do not pass, go, you know, just go straight. Others will criticize Dinah for foolishly going, going it alone in a land of unbelievers. You know, kind of like when you say, what's that, unlady, that, that, that young lady doing in the middle of the night walking the streets of Atlantic City? Doesn't she know better? There's evil out there. Certainly, we could question the wisdom of both of them. Jacob for putting them in that precarious situation, and Dinah for being so desperate for friends her own age that she put herself at risk. Isn't that true? We're teenagers today. They so long for friendship that how often they get themselves in positions that they didn't even want to be in, but they were so lonely. But what's interesting, and I want you to see this, this, hopefully when you interpret the scripture, when you read the scripture for yourself, you want to look at this. The text doesn't actually comment on either of their decisions. Did you notice that? It just tells us. And that's why I, 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 uh, I titled this, this sermon, by the way, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. It's just telling us what is. And what the text does emphasize, and that's always important to see, and what the word of God here in Genesis 34 makes abundantly clear beyond controversy is that what Shechem, son of Hamor, the, Levi, the, the Hivite, did in taking Dinah and violating her, quote unquote, verse 7, was a disgraceful thing, a thing that should not be done. There's no question about that. How often do we blame everybody but the perpetrator? Did you ever notice that? Instead of putting it squarely on the shoulders of the person that clearly transgressed the law of God and even common decency. You don't need Ten Commandments to know this is not right. God has given us a conscience. So ultimately it wasn't Dinah's fault for simply walking into the town. And it wasn't Jacob's fault for settling in Shechem for a while. We don't know why he did that. As a matter of fact, here's the interesting thing. You remember when, when Jacob, when they're in Egypt, you'll see this later on, Joseph says, bury me in the land of promise. And you know where jo Joseph ends up getting buried? In Shechem. So it's not necessarily that, that it was wrong. No, the problem was it was the evil, lustful actions of the son of the ruler of the land. He did a thing that ought not to be done. And the text says it in a number of places, just because we could miss this. It says over and over again that he defiled her. I want you to see that. And what's interesting here, for me, when I look at this chapter, it takes me back to the garden. And back in the garden, things were brand new. So there wasn't like crazy, radical, clear 
what we would consider awful sin, right? All they did was eat from a tree. <laughs> Doesn't seem that bad, right? Well, here we see just how bad it is. Because you remember when God confronted Eve? Do you remember this? He asked her a simple question. And I'm convinced he said it with sadness and, and with tears even. He said, what have you done? If I've heard it once, I've heard it a million times. How could God allow... Listen. Stop blaming God. It's you and it's me. It's sin. We wanted a world without God, now we got it. That's why the world out there is scary. It is cold and it is dangerous. We're not living in a fantasy land. We do have to pray here for a drive-by shooting, the, pastor's, the, the assistant pastor's house, behind his house. We do have to pray for the family of a child who was going to, to watch a nice football game and have some fun. And now a family has to put a baby in the ground. In this particular case, you take a thing that our culture is so obsessed with, we're so backwards about it, and it's the three-letter word sex. It's supposed to be God made it. It's supposed to be a beautiful, a good thing that brings more and more intimacy between one man and one woman in the bounds of holy matrimony where they can enjoy, as they can enjoy nowhere else, this special gift of God. And we desecrate it. And we cheapen it. And we destroy people's lives with it. According to the National Sexual Violence Resource Center, and I know statistics aren't perfect, but I, I have to think this is going to be close. One in five women in the USA will be raped at some point in their lives. Let that sink in, even if it's close to right. Remember at the beginning of my message, I mentioned that some popular positive thinking type preachers um, that have this big following in our country well, I remember a direct quote from one of them. Christians are too often known for what they're against. We need to focus more on what we're for. And that a lot of people applaud that, and they get, big, they get lots of, of kudos for that. But there's only one problem with that comment. It's a, it's a bunch of hogwash. Jesus said that we are what? The salt of the earth. You know what that means? That means we are preservatives. That means sometimes we have to come out and say, this is wrong. God hates this because it hurts people and it doesn't glorify him. You can't ignore sin, but you have to call it what it is and deal with it appropriately. And that's where Jacob and his sons severely missed the boat. They all agreed that Dinah was horribly sinned against. They, that, that much they agreed on. They even mentioned she was treated like a prostitute. She was defiled. But as we get to the second point, we have to notice this. And this is the most pain, one of the most painful things in this text. Is that none of them dealt with the sin in a God-honoring biblical way. And that's where sin in the church can be seen. They should have dealt with this God's way. But we're going to see nobody did. And this... This passage, 
Nobody does what God says should be done. And I'll show you this. So sin, we're going to see, is not completely absent in the church. It's not absent in the world, obviously, and it's not absent in the church. When Jacob hears of it, we read this in verse 5. His sons were in the fields with his livestock, so he kept quiet about it until they came home. Now listen, I don't think this is the verse where we could, we could take it and beat Jacob up with it. Because I think, as you look at the text, and I think there's, it stands to reason, the reason Jacob didn't just rush over into another country and, and, and confront the king and his son and all the armed men was because he knew if he went by himself, what was going to happen? You know, just try it. So I believe at this moment, it was a wise plan. Okay, let me wait till my sons get in from the fields and then we'll come up with a plan. So far, so good. That's not so much of a problem. But here's the problem. You would think that Jacob was going to, okay, now that we're here, boys, let's seek the face of the Lord. Right? Let's pray and let's ask God what we should do. Do you see that in the text? No. Do you see Jacob giving any direction to his son's anger? Any guidance? Miente. None. So what happens? Look at verse 7. Now Jacob's sons had come in from the fields as soon as they heard what had happened. They were filled with grief, and look at that word there, and fury. In other words, they were seeing red. And we can understand it. They weren't thinking about a godly response to evil. They weren't concerned about any repercussions of the revenge from the surrounding nations. They could only think about getting revenge. So this is an interesting thing. The temptation of older men, and I'm becoming one of them very quickly. The temptation of older men is to do what? Is to err on the side of doing nothing in order to keep the peace. You with me? But what's the opposite error for younger men? Younger men are rash and often jump into things without even thinking about them. It's a different season of life. And I think of the, the movie Batman and Robin. Yeah, I'm going to get a little bit crazy, but Bruce Wayne is trying to keep Dick Grayson, Robin, in check. Robin wants to go and, and get the suit on and be right next to Batman and get into danger and fight crime. And he's trying to keep Dick Grayson from making any kind of rash decisions and jumping into taking revenge. Well, Alfred, the butler, actually brings out, while they're, they're arguing, Alfred brings out this beautiful new Robin suit. <laughs> and, and Bruce Wayne says, Alfred, please, you're encouraging him. And then, believe it or not, I love this quote. Alfred replies, the wise old butler replies this way. Young men with a mind for revenge need little encouragement. They need guidance. Isn't that true? The sons of, of Jacob didn't need encouragement to do the right thing. They needed guidance on how to handle the sin that happened, the horrible sin that happened to their sister. But Jacob doesn't give, an, give them an alternative way to deal with the shameful sin committed against their sister. And so, as we read... In the text, we won't have to um, go through it, read it all over again, but we know what happened. Uh, Shechem's dad makes the proposal. The sons of Jacob make the counterproposal, and this was their interesting plan. No, everybody, let all, all the men in your city, let them get circumcised, 
and then we'll give you our sister's hand in marriage. And the whole time they were planning on doing what? So three days after an adult male gets circumcised, the point is you're going to be sore. That's what's going on here. You're not going to be ready to go to the front line battle when, when you're at home healing up. You, you following me? Yeah, exactly. And then we see what end up, ends up happening here is Dinah's full brothers, Simeon and Levi, carry out the dirty deed. They go and they stab all the men through with the sword because they're helpless. Talk about overkill. Think about this. They killed all the males in the town instead of dealing with the man who actually committed the crime only. You follow that? And then, then they had to add insult to injury. Look at verse 27. They looted the city where their sister had been defiled. They seized their flocks and herds and donkeys and everything else of theirs in the city and out in the fields. They carried off all their wealth and all their women and children, taking as plunder everything in the houses. Now listen, brothers and sisters, this was truly a dark day in Israel's history. There's no, no bones about it. You can't get around it. You just have to face it. It was ugly. And as true as Jacob's response later is to his son's wicked deeds, we can't help but think as we read it, Jacob, you're a day late and a dollar short. This is what he says in verse 30. You have brought trouble on me by making me a stench to the Canaanites and Perizzites, the people living in this land. We are few in number, and, and if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. But they replied, should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? But that wasn't the question. Everybody knew he shouldn't have treated their sister that way. The problem is they killed people that had nothing to do with the crime. They took justice in their own hands when they should have sought God's face and how to respond. They should have cried out to him for justice and for wisdom, and for restitution. Listen, Deuteronomy 32.55 puts it this way, in case you think I'm just adding my own opinion. Deuteronomy 32.35, God says this, It is mine to avenge. I will repay. When we go ahead and, and overshoot that, what we are saying is we don't trust you, God. We don't believe you're going to take care of it. We don't believe you're going to punish wicked, wickedness. But here's the big problem with taking revenge instead of waiting on God's justice in God's time. By stepping over the line and taking matters in our own hands, and by giving out a greater punishment than the deed deserved, we put ourselves in the same position as the evil perpetrator of the original crime. Even though we said they got it coming, now we got it coming. You ever think about that? It's no longer they got it coming, it's we got it coming. You know why? Because we repaid evil with evil. Listen, you can't defeat evil with evil. It's impossible. The Bible says not only again and again does it say don't repay evil for evil, but this is what it says in Romans 12. Do not repay evil for evil. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it's mine to avenge, I will repay, 
says the Lord. Now, when you flip to the end of the book of Genesis, when Jacob is blessing his sons, in case you think that there's no discipline of the Lord for the church, I want you to see this. In Genesis 49, Jacob's going one by one through his sons, and he's giving them blessings or discipline, and this is what he says to Simeon and Levi. Instead of getting a blessing, this is what they get. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council. Let me not join their assembly, for they have killed men in their anger and hamstrung oxen as they pleased. Cursed be their anger, so fierce, and their fury so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. There are real consequences to real sin. And these two young men, Instead of getting the day they waited for. You know, there is nothing more precious. I speak as a son. That when your father is passing, that he leaves you a blessing. Many of us, thankfully, we have a heavenly father. Because some of our fathers didn't know how to do that. But here on his deathbed, instead of getting a blessing, these sons get something their ears didn't want to hear. So sin is a sad reality in the world. It's a sad reality in the church. And it has awful consequences. And the last thing we are going to turn to in our last few minutes here. In the word. I want you to see this in the text. That salvation is just as much of a reality as sin is. And what we need to see is that chapter 34 ends on a very bleak, somber note. But the story doesn't end there. Remember, there are no chapters and verses in the original writings, right? So there's, not, there's no such thing as chapter 34. Chapter 35, verse 1, follows right up. And although I'm going to preach on it next week, chapter 35, I'm just going to very briefly introduce it because this is what we need to see where we do see good news and we get some of our answers to chapter 34. Chapter 30, uh, 35, verse 1, this is what God says. Now, look, look at this. Right after this horrible situation, you wonder, what is God going to say? What is God going to do? Chapter 35, 1. Go up to Bethel and settle there and build an altar there to God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. Did anybody catch that? I want to be honest with you, when I first read that verse, this is what came to my mind. What? Where's the discipline? Where's the holy wrath? Where's the anger? No words of condemnation, no words of discipline, no words of displeasure. Instead, this is the incredible thing, he invites Jacob back into the very house of God. Come back to Bethel, which means house of God, by the way, where I've met you tenderly those other times, the special spot where you and I have intimate fellowship. Come back in. I invite you into my presence, not as a judge, but as your Savior. The amazing thing is, instead of turning Jacob away, he invites him in. Now, why would a holy, righteous, good God do that? Because here's the incredible thing we've learned again and again in the book of Genesis, and then, of course, throughout the scriptures, that the same God who is holy and righteous and just is gracious and merciful and good. 
And he will do what he has promised to do even in the darkest of times. Even in this worst moment of Israel's history, God shows himself to be faithful. God shows himself to be merciful. God shows himself to be gracious. So notice Jacob's response. Jacob's response is really important to see. Because Jacob doesn't just go, oh cool, God forgot about the whole thing. Let's go have a party. Is that what he does? No, if we read on in the text, this is what, when, when God invites him in to, to make an altar to him and worship him, this is what Jacob does. Jacob says in verse 2 of chapter uh, 35, get rid of the foreign gods you have with you and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come, let us go up to Bethel where I built an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. My brothers and sisters, when mercy is shown, the only response, right response, is repentance and faith. It is to clean house. And the interesting thing is Jacob's not just cleaning house for himself. He tells his whole family, get rid of all those false gods right now. Clean house. We're going to go worship the one true God who has not dealt with us as our sins deserve. He did not think about it. God could have blotted them out. And started anew. But he didn't. And here's the neat thing. This is the foundation of the covenant of grace. This is God building the very church, the very people of God, through whom he is going to send Messiah, the Savior of the world, the Lord Jesus, to save his people from their sins. But here is, I want you to see this because this was the big aha moment for me when I studied this text. It's super important to see this. I wondered, but how can God just be merciful? How could he not treat them as their sins deserve and let them go on and have fellowship with him as if they didn't act in this awful way? And then I realized something. Now, this is going to be profound. Try to fit this in your mind. The cross of Christ is retroactive. (laughs) Isn't that cool? In other words, even though it happened 2,000 years later, it applied to 2,000 years before. Now, I know you're saying, Pastor Santo, you've been watching too many sci-fi flicks. You got any backup, any proof from the Bible that could show me that's the case? I do. Romans 3, real quick. We read it earlier, beginning in verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Now here's the verses. Listen, listen up. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. You get that? In other words, God didn't punish the sin Back here in Jacob's time, because he was waiting till when? Till his son came. And then all the wrath, all the justice, all the righteous anger of God was poured upon Jesus on the cross for Jacob and his family. The same gospel we believe in, the same Jesus we serve and love and worship is the one who saves Jacob and his family so they could be the foundation 
of Israel, the holy nation of God, through whom the Son of God would come. That's the only way to make sense of how a holy, righteous God presented us so far in the book of Genesis. Listen, the God who flooded the world in judgment could stay his hand and not give them what they deserve. So there is good news in all of this, and this is what I close with. Although sin is a sad reality in this world and even in the church, salvation through Christ Jesus is just as real. You know when people say, keep it real? Well, when you see Christ upon that cross, it can't get any realer. When you hear Jesus say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? There's nothing more real. John Newton, who was a former slave, slave trader, a wicked practice, when he got saved by God's amazing grace, he wrote Amazing Grace, the song. He was old. Let's, let's be honest, he was dying. And they got him up to the pulpit, and he said these words, Although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great savior. I'm going to just modify that for our purposes this morning. I am a real sinner. And Jesus is a real savior. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this is as much your word as the gospel of John. As much as we, it was very uncomfortable and painful and uneasy to look at the details of this chapter. We also look at it with joy as we realize it pointed us to you, Lord Jesus. Your very real blood that was shed on behalf of us because of our sins, because of the crimes we committed against you and against your word. Salvation is free, we know this, Lord Jesus, but it wasn't cheap. God forbid if we give that impression. So we ask this morning as we um, come to our time in the worship service where we meditate on your death and resurrection, as we partake of the bread and of the fruit of the vine. We pray, Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would continue to transform us by your grace, and, Lord, more and more, that we would cling to you by faith, that we, you could use us as your, basically, sinners saved by grace, your people, that we might be light and salt in a world that's dying. Oh, God, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.